welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature guitarist Tim Lurch. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome, everyone, to episode 19 of the High Action Podcast, our first episode of the new year. And boy, we all needed this new year. Happy! I haven't even wished you guys a happy new year yet. So, on you know, happy new year to, to you, John, to you, Perry, and to all our listeners. Um, how how was your New Year's week or your, your the two week blob that is like Christmas and New Year's? How was that? It was great, um, and it just took some time off and didn't do some playing for a few days. Got outside, and you know, usually I don't like odd numbered years. I feel like they're not as good as the even numbered years. I think that officially has changed for the rest of my life now. I think I like the odd numbered years. So I am welcoming 2021 with a lot of new music and some pretty fun stuff here for high action, man. I'm getting pretty excited for this year coming up. Me too. Perry, Perry, how about yourself? Well, New Year's was a little different for me. I mean, it was different for all of us, right? No gigs, really. So this year, uh, it was it was kind of nice. I won't lie. I just stayed home and ordered pizza from my favorite spot. I you love know? it. I know John. Uh, we we've shared some pretty incredible pizza moments over the years. <laughs> oh my gosh! Isn't should I tell the story? Should I tell the? Yeah, you should tell the I story, to listeners. Yes. Okay. Man, this one time. John and I were gigging somewhere near USC, little coffee shop, and his car broke down like half, I don't know, half a mile away from the school or something like that. And it was relatively close to where he lived. So we literally got out of the car and pushed it down Hoover Boulevard or something, Mm -hmm. like with the doors open and traffic going crazy. (laughs) And I remember there was this guy that slammed into your bumper a few times to give us a lift. And after we were done and it took us a couple hours to get his car pushed in, we ordered two large pizzas. And I think, John, you this is your big John days. I think you yes. crushed that in like five to seven minutes. I ate no the whole joke. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember you sitting there going like, man, that was incredible. And I said, dude, we just pushed my car down the frat row. And like, that was- a We deserved cra- it. That qualifies as a New West memory. That was definitely yes. one of our bonding experiences early on in the USC days, for sure. Yes. And so here I yeah, so here I was, I don't know how many years later, 15 years later, eating uh eating pizza on New Year's Eve. I'm ready for some 2021 New West memories. We we barely had any <laughs> we barely had any 2020 New West memories. We had one in I, Arizona. A gig, right. Arizona, but but yet we still kind of I think had even a bigger year because 2019 was big for the three of us. All of us were involved mm. in other projects and on the road with other stuff. And we still got a lot done in 2020. This year is going to be even better. More stories. Hopefully, we have some more stories from the road like that, you know, and just that we get to travel around maybe later this year. The podcast has been great. So thank you to the listeners. And, you know, on that note, we got Tim Lurch. We got Tim Lurch. And he had an amazing point that I wanted to kind of just riff off with you guys to get your input on, which was talking about not searching outward for finding yourself both personally and musically, but really taking time to search inward 
And I wanted to go around and talk about what that means to each of us, because that's a really profound statement. And I mean, it kind of makes a lot of sense. But I mean, I feel like these days, it's it's kind of hard to be disconnected from the world with, you know, the phone. But man, I mean, having that time, that designated time every day where you're away from it to just be with you um, is really important. And I think it's it, it'll save you. So Perry, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the path towards really kind of understanding who you are as an artist. You know, if you're going to go that route, not every guitar player has to go that way. You know, you can be... Uh, more of a jobbing cat, more of a working cat, where you're just really trying to fit the role that's called of you, whether that's performing or teaching or producing or whatever. But I think what Tim's talking about, too, is like like you're saying, kind of looking inward and not trying to tackle everything that's out there or copy everything that you hear, but just kind of focus on what it is about your own playing that really resonates you know, with yourself and with other people. And I think the way that... I try to do that is just from focusing on sound. And that was one of the things that we talked about, put, making that the priority, you know? So if, if you're thinking, well, what kind of sound am I really achieving? And starting with that, then I think the rest kind of can more naturally evolve. But that's one of the things I've loved about Tim's playing for a long time, you know? I think I mentioned it to him in the podcast was, he's got a great sound on that telly. Beautiful sound. John, what, what, is, what does all this mean to you? I mean, it resonates really well, and I love, Will, that, that you felt like that was such a great talking point for us to set up today's interview. Yeah, I mean, like you guys, I started guitar at such an early age, and I try every day to remember just how exciting it, all, it always has been. And I remember being younger and really loving the sound of acoustic guitar and wanting to get like these big acoustic guitar sounds I heard on the records of the day that were popular at that time. And I still feel like it's searching inward every day for my sound, that, that, that interest is there. And the more as you keep dialing it in over the years, it's just like you go, you dig farther and farther. And I love being on that journey. And, um, that definitely comes from like a natural sort of inkling and the feeling I've had for a long time about music, about the guitar. And regardless of the Instagram age, regardless of what everyone else is doing, or even for jazz guitar, like whatever the trend is today with sound. Yeah. I mean, I hear it, but I still go back to what I love to do and, and try to go farther with that. Tim's a great example of that. A lot of our guests, you can tell, like have had a concept of what they've wanted to do at an early time and really gone with that, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, he, he really explained that beautifully and his, you know, it's so cool for our listeners to get to learn more about his background because there's a lot of stuff he's put on recently in social media of solo playing. And then, of course, his great recordings with Pearl Django. So, um, yeah, he's very well spoken, very interesting guy from this generation of musician. I agree. I think we should start this interview and uh, wish our listeners a happy, healthy and better start to 2021 by 2020. All right. That's right. All right. So without further ado, here is Tim Lurch. So we've got Tim Lurch with us. 
Super, super excited to have him. He's holding this beautiful Telecaster that I'm going to with, withhold from asking about. We'll ask about that later. But, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Tim, you're from, is it Tacoma, Washington, originally? I No, not originally. Originally, I'm from near Sacramento, California. Uh, so I'm like you guys. I'm Well, I don't know about you guys. You guys are California now, right? Yeah. So Perry's from the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, John and I are from Portland. So oh, we've, got, Portland. we've got like a nice... Okay, yeah. yeah, West Coast dominant, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I live in Tacoma now. I moved to Tacoma from Seattle about three or four years ago. Seattle just got too hard to live, you know, money-wise. And then they closed the bridge, and so we're really happy we, we didn't yeah. get stuck in West Seattle with no bridge. Um, right. And uh, But I grew up near Sacramento, and then I moved to L.A. in the early 80s to you know, to dominate the, you know, yes. and I never succeeded in that. So <laughs> I ran away with my tail between my legs to Seattle. I know you have a, some serious influence by, um, you mentioned Nelson Riddle and Billy May for your whole, <laughs> your love of solo guitar and orchestration. Were they influences pretty early on? Um, boy, that it's hard to know. I, I, I think I may not have come to those great arrangers until later on, but I, I had I do have a um, so I grew up in a little town called Woodland, which is an agricultural town near Sacramento, um, not too far away from um, you know the the Bakersfield scene and and uh, all that, and a lot of the guys who were in that Western swing world were ended up kind of up near Sacramento and Woodland. Um, so when I was a, a kid, I was playing. With, I I remember playing. Uh, with these sessions with a guy named um, an electric violin player who played in swing groups, Emmett Pugh. And Emmett made a living as a, a gravestone cutter and played violin in the most distorted, wild manner you can imagine. And a few other guys from town, and I was, you know, 13 years old and, and wanting to play jazz, and they were playing, you know, we played whatever we could play, you know, Avalon and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I never really got into teenage rock and roll bands, oddly. I, I, I got into jazz early on. I heard uh, Art Tatum Trio. For some reason, I bought an Art Tatum Trio record, and I heard Tiny Grimes. When I heard that sound, I was like, ah. You know, and I was playing guitar at that time. I liked Eric Clapton and, and some of those guys, too. You know, but I never really went for the kind of music that my friends like, you know, Aerosmith and Kiss and all that. I didn't, I just didn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, I like blues and, and I like ragtime kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. Cut my teeth on that sort of stuff. And then I, got, I heard Charlie Parker and I was pretty much toast by then. Had to, had to figure that out. Um, you, somewhere along the line, relatively along, around the same time I heard um, Ted Green. And Ted Green kind of melted my mind and still pretty much does. My mind is pretty much melted because of Ted Green. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, everybody. My mind is melted. Um, and uh, But, you know, growing up in Sacramento, there was, or around there, there was a little jazz scene. By the time I was able to play, I could play with others around town. Uh, Steve Holman is another guy who was in high school just a couple of years in front of me, and he was a, already a great guy in Sacramento by the time I was coming up. Do you guys know Steve? I do not. Oh, my God. Steve Holman's killing. He's, mm. He basically teaches at uh, one of the universities in Sacramento now, but when, I, you know, when he was you know, a couple of years older than me, he was like the shit. You know? He was really playing great. 
still does play great. Anyway, and oh, I was going to say, when I was in a kid in high school, I, I joined the big band, you know, like we did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're playing, you know, like that. And I told my teacher, I said, I said, well, this is great. I like doing this, but what about, how do I, how would I play like the horn section? Like, ba ba and he goes, well, you mean, what do you mean? And I said, well, I want to play the whole thing. I want to play like, you know, all of those lines all together. And he looked at me and he said, it's not possible. <laughs> but that was, you know, I was, you know, 15 and I still think it's possible. I still don't believe my team. We agree. We agree. <laughs> and and so that that pretty much right there, that moment sort of solidified or kind of coalesced my life quest, which is to be able to play, um, to follow my dad's advice. And this is really interesting. My dad is could barely whistle a tune. He didn't like music. He didn't know much about music. He had not really much music. My mom had some music. She played church songs after dinner on the piano. But my dad said something to me when I was about 13 or 14 that was completely the best musical advice anybody's ever given me, which is ironic. He said, Timmy, why don't you play a song, a song that I can recognize all the way through? And that's still, that's still my goal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right? I'm still trying to play a song that you recognize. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so that's the thumbnail of that. I could probably so, go on and on. But. What brought you to Washington? Um, we were in L.A. I moved down to L.A. The, um, the woman I was with at the time um, had family in the Valley. And, um, in fact, prior to going to L.A., I would r- run down there to visit her family. And then on the day after Thanksgiving or something like that, I would go over to Ted Green's house and catch a lesson. And um, But then I finally moved down. I moved down to L.A. in 83 to go to GIT. We lived in Hollywood um, in a little bungalow, and I was the worst student ever. <laughs> How so? Well, I went to GIT because I loved Joe DiOrio, and I, I heard that he was teaching there. As do we. Joe the Greatest, yeah. Talked to him on the phone just about every a couple of months. Um, it was his birthday just a couple of days ago, too. Right. And, um, and so... Joe had office hours every other week, and Ron Eshte had office hours alternating with Joe. And I just went to the office hours. I hardly ever went to a class. You know, it, it was fine for me because I was already, by that time, I was already playing. I didn't need to learn about scales and, you know, stuff. I probably, in hindsight, it probably would have been better for me if I had gone to class. They might have hired me to teach there if I had gone to class. <laughs> um, uh, I, in fact, I got to teach during the summer session after I graduated, but that was more based on, you know, that Bruce Buckingham was running this, the, the program and, and knew me and we played together. And so he just hired me. Um, but uh, I had a wonderful year. It was just a year then, no degree, but I just lived with Ron and Joe. That's so yeah. funny, man. Ron was my teacher in college. Oh, and John and Perry studied with uh, Diorio, so it's that was yeah in the next in the next uh, phase of their teaching careers. When they, where were they? T- at USC or UCLA? I was with Ron at Cal State Long Beach. John and Perry were at USC with yes. Diorio. I love Joe, and he, even though I don't play like him, and I, I, I don't think, and and I didn't really you know get a bunch of intervallic designs or whatever. I, I feel like he's my musical father. He was. So encouraging and so uh, loving toward me that I didn't have it. You know, Ted and Joe and Ronnie. I mean, I guess 
everybody, but <laughs> I mean, Jimmy Weibel was lovely to me too, but I didn't know him as well. I didn't see him as often. But those guys, I can't really believe it. It's like they just took this snotty-nosed kid who thought he could play and, and helped me, you know, and, and took care of me and made sure I was okay and encouraged me. It was really, really wonderful. And what was it like working with Ted? Ted was, Ted loved teaching. He was probably the most systematic teacher that I had. Um, Joe and I would just hang out and ponder and, and be creative. And Ronnie was, was more hands-on, like we played together a lot. So, and then I learned by his, you know, comments about what I might do here or there, or, hey, don't rush or whatever, you know. But Ted was very systematic. And so you went to Ted and you had questions and then Ted would be very tangential because that was how his mind was. He'd give me enough work for, you know, six months. And I didn't really, I didn't really study with him like once a, a week or, or once a month. Or, you know, it was just whenever I could get up there. I lived in Hollywood. He lived in, in the valley and I didn't have a car. But uh, you'd go over there and there was always, a, you know, I, I always ended up at the end of the day or often ended up at the end of his day, so, which was great because I'd get an hour lesson for $18 or something like that. And, and then he, we would get off talking about something and I could tell he still had some energy and I didn't have anywhere to go. And so we would just talk about all sorts of things, Ray Charles and B.B. King and, you know, uh, uh, Max Steiner and, and Bill Evans and everything in between. I, every there's not a day goes by, guys. I swear there's not a day, maybe not even half a day, where I wish I could ask Ted another question. It's just you know he got me started on so many things, and I've always been sort of a self-taught person, in spite of the, my my good fortune with having met teachers. I'm, I think we all are. Wouldn't you agree? It's like, yeah. Um, but I, I mean, he'd get me started on something. There'd be four or five layers under the first lesson that he didn't give me. And, I mean, I'd have to work it out. You know, I'd have to try and remember what he said. Did Ron ever give you his uh, any of his packets? Yeah, yeah, I got all I got all of Ron's packets. Still have mine. It's so funny how to yeah. just like manage to stick around even through moves. Yeah, so I found just about two two months ago. I found a a Manila envelope that had a copy of Ron's unpublished rhythm guitar manuscript and i tried to call him and, and ask him if he wanted me to send it back to him or or what 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 if anything he gave it to me so that i could proofread it and and then some you know life intervened and i maybe the project never came to fruition i don't think i have the only copy <laughs> because what i have is kind of clearly a copy um but uh, anyway, yeah, Ron, Ron gave me that stuff, and we also did some gigs together, uh -huh. and I, he got me a seven-string guitar, which I played for about two years until I realized I'd prefer to play a, a low-tuned Telecaster. Somehow, I really understood Ronnie's teaching. It, it, it was practical and made sense to me, and, and uh, you know, salt of the earth like him, you know. Today's episode of High Action is sponsored by Hendrickson Amplifiers. These guys are great. They're based out in Colorado in the Denver area, and they really build the guitar amplifier designed to meet the needs of the jazz guitar player. We're talking about people that want extremely high quality sound in a portable package. Yeah, their amps are not that heavy, so you can carry them around at the gigs or your friend's house, wherever you're going. 
The keys to their success have been manufacturing in their own facilities, keeping their quality control as high as possible, using all analog designs to preserve tonal integrity, 100% commitment to the absolute best customer service in the industry. Believe me, we know these guys, they're great. So check out Henriksen Amps if you want to get a good tone out of your guitars. gigging around LA much and getting to like I was trying to but it was it was nearly impossible this is 1984 85 86 and I didn't want to be in a pop band you know I played I played in this Russian band at the Beverly Center upstairs at the St. Petersburg Tea Room and it was me and a bunch of Russian guys playing from seven o'clock at night until your eyes started to bleed and like three nights a week and it was the best paying gig I could find they paid like 85 a night plus tips and so I'd, I'd maybe make about 130 bucks a night three nights a week and it was only about five or six blocks away from where I lived so I could drive home you know kind of deliriously at the end of the night and they didn't speak any you know any musical English they spoke a little bit of English but so they'd say uh, and that was my instruction <laughs> and and I got to realize that you know, if you know autumn leaves, you pretty, you can pretty. As soon as you hear, as soon as you hear it go, it's going. Okay, <laughs> you know, and and um, I played all by ear all night long, and I was Mister. You know, they pointed me to me to play a rock and roll solo, but mostly I just played. You know, the upbeat of the. I'd hear the bass on the downbeat, and I'd play the. Up, you know, because we played European music, Russian music, Jewish music, and and um, you know, it was basically a, a live jukebox for all the people who were displaced. Who didn't hear the music that they loved, and these guys, Sasha Shapivker, hmm. a clarinet player, uh, Viktor Slatkin, a piano player named Boris. <laughs> the funniest story: Boris was this little little short guy played piano, uh, bald, kind of a big head. One night I came to the gig, and there was Boris at at the uh, the bar, and I walk up, and he's with this really tall drink of water in a black dress with dark black hair slender you know and he said Tim this is my wife Natasha and I started laughing because it was Boris and Natasha from, from the Bullwinkle show oh, it was man. oh my god I started laughing and they didn't and she said hello Tim <laughs> It was a great gig, and it was torturous, but it was fun, and, and it prevented me from having to do, you know, play in a band doing Madonna covers or whatever, which I just couldn't have done. I didn't want to do it. And then I, after that, I ended up going on the road with, with various bands to, you know, as a sideman. So you're in L.A., and you said 84 around that? I moved down in 83. I went to school in 84, 85, and stayed there till 89. And then what brought you up to the Pacific Northwest? Well, you know, I was married. We had a kid. We just kind of said, somebody Somebody said they were from Seattle. And we just thought, oh, you know, I remember the Here Comes the Bride TV show. had, You know, <laughs> Seattle looked pretty good to me. And it was still a city, but it was a little smaller. And I grew up in a small town, so I wasn't really a city-oriented person. And we just moved up here. Bought a house, and, you know, a weekend and moved up. And it, you know, it was great. And then how did you get connected with Pearl Django? Uh, Pearl Django started um, at the sort of the 
early 90s or there were predecessors to it earlier but i think the name came about in 91 or so when dudley and neil and shelly were in the band and pope the bass player and michael gray the violinist i knew of those guys i was teaching in in seattle at that time and i I liked their records especially the early records and so i was aware of them And, and then i went away did a little off the grid I got out of music for a while. There's some interesting kind of connect connections to all. Of them. Um, and then when I came back to Seattle in 2006, I checked them out again, and I realized they were still around and still playing, and the, the, the personnel had changed. And then eventually I ended up meeting the bass player in the band, Rick Lepinen, and Rick and I did some gigs uh, together. We both lived, we lived right down the street from each other, and so one day I swung by his house and I said, hey, how's it going? with the band and he said oh well we're looking for a guitar player you know anybody who might like the the job and at that time you know even in 2010 or 2012 it wasn't like there was a gypsy jazz group on every corner like there is now you know it seems like it's really taken off Um, and so it, it was difficult for them sometimes to find player a player who could fit the bill you know who could be the the vocabulary. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, just have the chops and also it was, it was into it and wanted to work, you know, because they were, they do about, you know, when back in the day when we were actually playing, you know, actual gigs. You know, when I joined, we were doing 90 or 100 gigs a year. Not so much touring. We're very fortunate. Mm. We do do some week long or 10 day things, but mostly we just play in the region, you know, from Vancouver down to. Ashland and then over to Spokane or beyond, you know, and a lot of times we'd be able to sleep at home, you know. So I, I ended up, you know, sending him a little tape of me playing, you know, some gypsy music, something I'd always loved and, and never really had a chance to do much, but always, you know, I listened to Django since I was a kid. So I knew the mater- I knew the material and I knew their material pretty well. It turns out that I went to the first couple of gigs with a with a Manouche style guitar. Mm. And and I ended up, because of the way things were going in the band at the time, Neil Anderson came back into the band when I joined. And he took over the acoustic. Well, I mean, he didn't take over anything. He would just did what he did, but uh-huh. it wasn't necessary for me to play that thing. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you guys want me to do? Do I have to get a thin mustache and a beret or what do you need? You know? <laughs> and they said, no, 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 we want you to be you, you know? And, and so... The early days of, of Pearl Django was Neil and Dudley. Neil played Django style, and Dudley played American swing style on an arch top. So I said, you guys haven't had an arch top guy in the band for about, you know, since, since Dudley died, you know, 10 or more years ago. I think that's a, a nice opportunity for me to kind of bring that back. And so that's from relative early on, I just decided that that was going to be and they like that they they sounds, like that it sounds so good with that mix it, it to me it's it makes the band unique um and it allows me to do my sort of post swing bebop style and put it into that context mm-hmm. and i love it i love being in this band it's so fun what what were some of the venues like around seattle or you know the washington area were you gigging a lot outside of pearl Django? yeah when i first got to town you know there isn't much of a jazz scene in town there's only three or four clubs um, and they they typically don't pay and i've always been a guy that needed to make a living you know so i would teach and play but i didn't really want to play go out on my night off and play for 30 bucks or something 
I played a lot of blues and R&B because it was paying money. There's casinos around here and stuff. Um, so I played with uh, an Elvis guy who has a very good Elvis guy. And he paid really well. And we did, you know, casino shows, sold out all the time. He was literally like one of the best two or three in the country, you know. Wow. Um, very good. And then that band that backed him up was, a, you know, a, had an old school kind of R&B group. Played a lot of old school R&B in those same casinos in the lounges. Um, and so I was working, you know, making a living, working. Uh, then I got a call from Lee Oscar, who's a harmonica player of some repute. Some people might know him as the harmonica player in that great band War. Mm. And uh, he had a gig. Uh, it was just a monthly residency. And so I joined it with him for seven years. Uh, during that time, I also played with a great blues singer named Mark Dufresne. Um, and Mark was a singer who was with uh, Roomful of Blues for quite a few years, six or seven years. He moved back here after touring with them and put put a band together. And when when a friend of mine who was in the band was ready to leave, he recommended me and I got the gig. And then all of those things had to stop when I got Pearl Django. Mm -hmm. um, so in some ways, we were playing clubs with those R&B bands. The blues bands always played clubs. The R&B and sort of show bands played casinos. And now with Pearl Django, we play mostly like concert venues, churches and, and um, festivals and... Uh, listening rooms, you know, you know that, that kind of thing. Probably a lot of the same kind of stuff you guys do. Yeah, yeah, like the New West Guitar Group probably plays a lot of the same types of yeah. uses. I mean, if we can get 150 or 200 people to pay 30 bucks to get in, and and they sit there and listen, it's it works. So, <laughs> you know, and then we sell a lot of CDs. I'm curious. You mentioned you spent some time away from music and off grid. If you wouldn't mind. Yeah, uh, briefly in uh, 1990. Four, I was getting a little bit, um, you know, I was playing in a country, country bands. That was that was happening at the time, like line dance bands, you know, seven nights a week on a circuit around the town, you know, really grinding. You know, you get maybe maybe you got sixty bucks a night, and you pay play six nights or seven nights. I was one one gig we had was fourteen days straight, and then a, and a day off to get to the next, you know, and um, these are you know nine nine to one thirty type you know grinders. Um, and I was pretty dead inside from doing that. And I uh, I wanted to take a break. I didn't understand how I could do that. I wasn't happy or, or being fulfilled. I wasn't healthy. Uh, anyway, I ended up uh, taking advantage of the opportunity to go and live in a meditation center. And um, so I took, from 1994 until 2006, I was in that world. Wow. wow. And uh, in, interestingly... I didn't play that whole time, mm -hmm. except for the occasional like, hey, you know, so, you know, I didn't, you, know you play, I can play. Uh, but I played up here every day in the afternoon. <laughs> mm. One of the meditation periods would be from, you know, right after lunch, you know, one o'clock to two o'clock. And I would just, okay, every day, one o'clock to two o'clock is music, music time. That way I wouldn't just sit there and daydream about music, you know. <laughs> And so I was able through doing that to sort of get healthy, first of all, in my mind and in my body, and also remember the joy that I felt about music that I had lost a little bit. Mm -hmm. So when I came back to full-time playing in 2006, I was certainly renewed and refreshed. And I was also much more mature in my mind as a, what I wanted to do as a player. Mm -hmm. you know, I think play, you know, doing all that away from the guitar solidified a lot of stuff in my mind. It was, uh, it, had, it wasn't there before. I was chasing after something 
outside of myself. And then I realized I, I need to look inside to find out wh what I have to offer as a musician. So that's sort of the tone of it right now for me, even still. Before I pass it off to John, you mind if we play a track? Do whatever you like, man. I, I'd be very curious to see which one you pick. Maybe we could pull up Starlight Ballroom. Yeah. Oh, I love that song. Now, this yeah, song was man. written by um, our accordionist, David Lang, and he also is the recording engineer and producer of the records. He writes, the, he writes one song per record, and it, they're always brilliant. It's mm -hmm. just brilliant. Nice. And uh, this one was a real challenge. similarities in what Pearl Django does, like the concept of rhythm. And a lot of it is in the guitarist's hands with the rhythm guitar and yeah. with the, the way your lines are locking in those eighth notes. That's beautiful. Oh, playing. thank you guys. I, I'm very proud of that. I, you know, I added a few things to the arrangement that we didn't hear just now because I, that was just the solo section. Um, it's a brilliant arrangement. Uh, and, you know, it starts out with this, you know, little line. You know, and it's so evocative. And David is a brilliant player. If you ever give a ch get a chance, he's got two solo records out, and he's on every Pearl Django record since about the third or fourth record. Um, but I'm glad you like that. Thank you. That's a really beautiful. I'm proud of that. First of all, man, thank you for sharing with us all the history. It's so cool, the common threads, man. Um, we won't tell you how old we were in 1983 and 84, but I'll give you a clue. It was um, not even in the single digits yet. Will yeah. was five years in the making, but um, it's, it's yeah. cool to hear. I have, I have kids older than you guys. There we yeah. go. There we go. But it is really cool to hear how, you know, all these mentors, man, like Diorio, Eshte, Ted Green. I know you probably encountered Jimmy Weibel and some of these other yeah. guys. Yeah. Um, you know, these guys had a huge impact on us too. And we love hearing just the lineage and the story that, that, that you have. Do you feel like, um, it, you know, I know you took some time off and, uh, what you're doing now, you're, you've got so many cool videos you're putting out, all sorts of great content. It's really interesting, all the solo guitar stuff that you're doing. And then hearing you on these great Pearl Django recordings, do you feel like what you're doing now is really realizing a vision that you might have had for what your dream was when you were out of high school and coming to L.A.? Because it sounds like you're the kind of player like we were, where we were really focused on jazz and wanting to like really do that uh, more than like the pop thing. Yeah, you know, I was really a fish out of water trying to make it in L.A. in the 80s. Because it was, it, you know, it was just a very narrow, you know, I mean, someone, to, maybe somebody like, you know, Howard Alden or or um, Jimmy Bruno, they were there at the time as well. And I think they didn't stay very long. They went wherever they went, back to Philly or New York or whatever. Um, there just wasn't much of a scene. I tried. I mean, I played in groups. You know, we had a Tuesday night at at some Irish pub mm -hmm. every week. It was, you know, play, good players. I mean, 
cats would come in and it was somewhere something you know but um yeah i would like a fish out of water and then i decided then i just sort of said okay god i gotta make a living so i learned how to make I learned how to play country guitar. I learned how to play R&B guitar. I'd always play blues, you know. So I just went to, to I did my homework and learned how to be a sideman on gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to say, I didn't really love that much. You know, I didn't, I, some guys, that's all they want to do. But mm-hmm. you, I, I think your question is insightful because I definitely feel, I consider myself a late bloomer. Let's just, let's just say that. I didn't have my shit together when I was younger. I really didn't, you know. And and I I was precocious and maybe a, you know, maybe more confident than I should have been about my skills, but I didn't get a lot of gigs. I had a lot of trouble, you know, so I less maybe one of the reasons I ended up playing a lot of solo guitar because I could work on that and stuff. It came together slowly over time and I put my, I paid my dues again over time, but it's really interesting. I was doing the show band with the Elvis guy and I was doing R&B and I, and then I, I just got to the end of it and I said, you know what, damn it, I don't want to do this anymore. And and I so I called the guys up and I said, look, I'm gonna, I'm letting it go. I still did Lee Oscar and Dufresne, um, but I said I t- <laughs> the reason I said I didn't want to do it anymore is because I I was bummed out being in the casinos, which is true. Casinos are not a very positive environment. Uh, just <laughs> yeah. And uh, literally a day after I quit, I got a call to do four nights a week at a restaurant in a casino playing solo guitar. Mm. 350 bucks a night. And I said, you know, <laughs> fuck it. <I'll> take it. <laughs> and, um, and it was just amazing because as soon, as soon as I made that decision to get out of playing, you know, copy music and, and covers and show tunes and show bands and not show tunes, but show bands and all that other noisy stuff. So I said, if I'm going to be able to, you know, save myself here, I got to make some choices. So I get this gig. So I'm doing, Mark Dufresne on Saturday nights and Lee Oscar on one Friday night a month and then four nights a week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. And then I would sub out that one, the one night that I, I needed to be with Lee Oscar. And, um, oh my God, it was, it was really great. And, and it reminded me that I wanted to be a creative musician, not a sideman who just played, you know, what somebody else had already played. And then, you know, uh, th- other things, like I said earlier, I ended up getting in Pearl Django. And Pearl Django for me is a really creative group. I get to write. I've written three songs per record for you know, and since I've been in the band, or three or four, and and they let me play how I want to play. In fact, they love how I play, which is boy, there's an idea, right? To be in a band where the people actually like what you're doing, you know? Yeah, I know. Well, much of our career as musicians, for, for people listening to the podcast, we have meeting musicians listening to the podcast, non-musicians, and, you know, it's a combination of being in this stream, this current of gigs that come our way, and we're floating down that stream, and then we try to kind of get off that tributary to pursue our own creative endeavors. You know, New West, we've been fortunate to get out with our own original music, get out and play a lot of shows. Yeah, it's really, really um, admirable what you guys have done it's fantastic thanks tim well do you you know one thing we do in new west is we talk a lot about writing for each other and now that you've been in pearl Django and you've been writing some songs to the record do you feel like now you know the players in the band so well that you're you're not writing for accordion and second guitar but you're writing for these guys kind of like what duke ellington talked about writing in his band he wrote really for players And, and also the way i write john i don't write everything out i write a tune like you might see on a lead sheet Mm. And then I let the guys do their thing. 
And I really believe in that because I don't think I can come up with as good a shit as David can come up with. You know, and he all like like for instance, here's an example Uh, on the on the first record that I was on with friends like these. I wanted to do a tribute to Dudley Dudley Hill, who was this great kind of swing style guy, and he played a lot of chord solos. You know, he'd play that kind of style in in incorporating that into the the gypsy stuff. And so I wrote this tune called Floyd Hoyt Rides Again. And Floyd Hoyt is a is a fake band name that Dudley used to talk about. He would call, he would say Floyd Hoyt and the Out of Towners was the name <laughs> of the band. So on that record, I, I wrote this song, Floyd Hoyt Rides Again, and I wrote a song called The Out of Towner. And so I did this chord solo um, chorus. So everybody took a solo, and then the last thing was I took another solo with chord style at a tribute to Dudley. And then I said to David, wouldn't it be cool if you doubled the, the melody on this improvisation? Because it was co- totally, you know, improvised. And, and we said, oh, yeah, that'd be fun. Could be cool. And about three weeks later, he sent me a mix of the song and he had played the melody along with my improvisation. And I, I, I started crying. I mean, it was like, geez, who would do that? You know, who would take the time to, to do that? And I realized, oh, my God, this is... This is a real band, you know, yeah, this is a real tour. Like in New West, I feel like as the newer arrangements I've done in New West, there's more slashes in the measures for these guys to do their thing, especially when it comes to rhythm guitar playing. You know, we I used to really dictate how I wanted the rhythm played, and now we kind of have our, we've coined our rhythm feels within the New West guitar group. And um, yeah, I mean, it's we feel so great connecting to you, first of all, just as a guitar player, but it's really cool to get that insight that Pearl Django that you're writing kind of these lead sheet style arrangements for the, for this well, guy. I am, but like David, David is much more uh, specific and Michael tends to be more specific. Rick tends to write beautiful tunes that, that you just play and then they sound good, you know, mm-hmm. and Jim now the new, our new rhythm guitar player has written a couple of fantastic tunes. Um, and we all have our own individual styles and, you know, uh, um, I really like to write this op- more open style um, because it's a joy to, for me to have the guys add something that I would have to make what I, you know, made better. Yeah. You know? man. Yeah. Hey, Tim, uh, thanks again for being on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure to sit and listen to you talk about getting into music. Uh, you mentioned the Bakersfield sound early on, which I think is pretty cool. Not everybody knows a lot about that. Uh, artists like Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. But uh, New West, actually, we played a gig in Bakersfield, and they asked us, they said, uh, can you guys maybe have something ready from one of the Bakersfield sound guys? It could be a great encore. I got the song down, really started to enjoy it, and then we played it on the gig, and the crowd went wild. So that's a great you know, zone of music to educate yourself on. There's a lot of good guitar playing in there for people that don't know. Uh, and also... Anytime I meet somebody that spent significant time with Joe DiOrio, I feel like they're a kindred spirit because it's a bond that we have uh, with guitar players. Every single person that spent some time with him has the same feeling of like, yeah, he's just sort of like my father of guitar, or godfather of guitar. And yeah. uh, it's amazing the kind of influence, special influence that he's had on a lot of guitar players. Yeah, he's my father and you're my brother. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, one thing specifically I wanted to ask you about is I really admire your sound on the telly. 
And when you when you approach your solo guitar playing, I feel like you're approaching it with this notion of quality of sound first, and maybe quality of sound before some crazy technical thing that could be accomplished on the guitar. A lot of times I hear guys playing things that are technical and complex and sophisticated, but there's the sound isn't there on their instrument. Maybe they're compromising that to pull off the whatever passage they're trying to pull off. And I just would love for you to talk a little bit about how you developed your solo thing with sound at the forefront, because that's kind of how I hear it. Thank you for that question. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I did this because the questions are wonderful. Um, because we're all players, I think we get a, another a higher level of insight into the yeah. question. So thank you, Perry. I compromise uh, um, speed. I mean, I'm aware of it, that I compromise speed for sound. Uh, or, uh, you know, technical virtuosity. Uh, you know, there's a certain kind of virtuosity in what I do, but it isn't flashy because it needs to be rooted in producing and sound. Um, exactly. One of the things that Ted influenced me most about, I mean, th I know how to play chords and I know how to play solo guitar and I can do a lot of things I learned from him. But the thing that really got under my skin from the very first and I kept bugging him about is the sound. And um, he told me something. I've shared this a lot, so I, I, I hope it's not redundant. But he said, well, Tim, you know, when we're playing, we do something. We, we, we bring a sound into existence. We preside over it while it's in existence. And then we determine whether it's gonna, when it's going to end. And if you think about that, like, that's a really powerful thing to be even considering. We, we make everything start. We live with it while it's alive. And we decide when it's going to stop. And if you're doing an, you know, polyphonic guitar, you're doing that times four or five. So it was impressed upon me very early. I've always been a guy that liked sound. Like, like I liked um, Clapton's soloing on the Beano record, mostly because I liked the sound of it. And other people playing all the same licks, but with a, they weren't as, you know, in tune or they weren't as um, rich sounding. I wouldn't care as much for them. Um, and so I've always wanted to sound good. Worked hard on it, actually. Um, to make this thing sound good, is it, you have to work on it. And so I always say I pull the note out of the guitar. So I'm not hitting a, I'm not hitting a string to activate a string. I'm actually drawing the note out. I'm sorry. And I use the flesh of my fingers for the most part, a little nail on my little finger and a little nail on my thumb for, for the, the chimes. Um, but I really want to, I love Jim Hall. Jim Hall almost always sounded good to me. I love Ed Bickard. Ed Bickard almost always sounded good to me. I love Ted. And I just like guys who sound good. In spite of whatever else I might be doing, I want the melody to sing and I want the song to be honored. And, and then I love rich chromatic harmony that I try and play as much as I can without being obvious about it. Yeah, well, it's, you do it so well, man. Um, and, and checking out your solo playing, uh, it's really just wonderful. I love hearing it. And it is quite complex. You do a lot of counterpoint stuff that you can't just pull off, you know, like it, you have to kind of dive into that stuff and get a lot of experience. But yeah, I, create, I think you have to create systems for it. It's, it's something that's another thing that got under my skin 
early on is I wanted to hear multiple voices moving, and I didn't know how to do it. And I'd read classical counterpoint books, and I wouldn't understand what they were talking about. I right. finally cracked the code a little bit, my own little, in my own little way. So yeah. I love that, and I'm glad you like it too. Yeah, I really do. And, and again, I feel like you put the sound uh, and the quality of the sound you're trying to, to play with at the forefront of your approach. And that's why I feel like the sound is always so great when you're playing on that telly. So thank you for bringing that in to, uh, to our world. <laughs> uh, another question I, I wanted to ask you about, and it relates to New West. You know, John and I started New West about 15 years ago. And we just put ourselves right out on the road. You know, we booked as many gigs as we could, uh, you know, on a summer between, between uh, our, my, my junior and senior year at college. And we just tried to get ourselves out there. And we started very much at a grassroots level. And I wonder if you feel like Pearl Django started on a grassroots level and then built themselves into being able to have representation and having bigger gigs that's sort of been the path for New West. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that because it's a, it's a struggle at times. You know, you yeah, have it to, it's almost identical to what you described. I mean, Dudley and Neil wanted to be a, be a band and they just started playing gigs. They got a, you know, whatever they could get and they got a residency at, at, at a joint back in the day when you could still do that kind of thing. But we don't have representation. We Actually, the, the violinist in the band gets paid a stipend to book the band. He's the nominal oh, okay. band leader. Um, and he does a great job, and, um, uh, and he's been, been doing it for a long time. At first, it was kind of ad hoc. You know, Dudley would bring CDs to the record stores and forget they were there and all sorts of stuff. And... and uh, uh, Michael Gray started booking the band relatively early after he joined the band because he was like, "Dudes, you got to get the, you got a really good product here, but you're not doing it right. We got it, you know." And he took over and really did a great job, and still does. Now we don't have any gigs, but but you know he's still working even. <laughs> and, um, and and then also this is something I don't know if you guys have done, but Modern Hot Records is a separate company. A separate company, but all the Pearl Django records are funded by Modern Hot Records, and and we get a, a royalties and and bonuses from Modern Hot. And everybody who's ever been in the band or ever made a record with the band gets a check um, from Modern Hot throughout the year. Um, and so it was just a you know there wasn't you know an option other than that if you wanted to do what they did. You know, it just, that's the way it had to be done, you know? Yeah, it's wonderful because, I, you know, a lot of musicians don't want to go through that experience. They don't want to be uh, hustling the gigs and trying to connect with presenters or bookers and trying to promote the gigs, trying to get some sort of street team wherever they're showing up, whether that's just somebody's house you could stay with, a patron or something like that. But it's a lot of work to manage all the parts yourself. And yep. I just assumed at this point you guys had had, uh, you know, official representation, but sometimes people in the band, if you've been doing that long enough, you can take that on. I yeah. mean, you know, John and I, with all this experience from booking, we could totally take on a booking agency. It would just be a matter of it cutting into the time that we want to spend doing other stuff. So right. we tried to delegate it, but it's, it can still be frustrating. But it's, it's really great to kind of understand your guys' journey, uh, Pearl Django's journey, coming from grassroots and building yourself up to a recognizable place where yeah and i'm not really the best person to talk money. about it other than the fact that i'm learning about it from stories that are told you know 
but I love the yeah. guys and I really admire what they've done and it's it's perfect for me and um, I'm not very good at all of that hustling I I'm introspective and um, in, introverted and I tend to like quiet time I love playing I love interacting with others but I tend to go into my little world and I don't I mean, I'll just stay home. I admire you guys because, I mean, you weren't even out of school yet and you were putting it together and you were creating a repertoire and you are creating a reputation and you were learning your your instruments and getting your skills together. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, and in some ways, that's what Pat Metheny did. That's what a lot of the cats who from the just the, the previous generation to you guys, that's what they did. They just said, okay, I love it. I'm, I'm buying a van. Come on, <laughs> wherever, you know. Uh, and we were very, that's what we're very aware. Of, we were very aware of that, and we've tried to follow in the footsteps of so many that have uh, gone through this. And uh, we're in a very different time right now, but that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast and trying to build community. Again, thank you for for making the time for us. Well, any, anytime you guys want to do a thing where you're doing a, a trip up and down the coast with the, with you know with your and you need somebody to open, I'll play a little Telecaster. And you've been playing your new arch top from Linda a lot recently, right? I've been seeing you do that. Because when we met at the festival in Colorado, that was a guitar you had just acquired at that just point. Just picked it up, yeah. You know, it's funny. I I, um, I had, as soon as I got it, I started playing it with Pearl Django, and it worked great for that. I was wanting a little smaller body guitar, and Linda made this thing where the, the, the wedge makes it thinner on this side and thicker on this side. And then, uh, so I played that all the way up until we stopped playing. And then uh, my guitars kind of sit out on the rack. And last time I picked that guitar up, I noticed that the action had gone way up, which, which is what arch tops will do. It, the humidity had gone up, so the, the action went up. And so I decided I better put her back in the case to live in the case for a while before I make an adjustment of any kind. And so right now she's over there. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a little bit of a, I have a little bit of an issue. I, I buy too many guitars. Yeah. I buy and sell guitars. I love guitars. And I'm always looking for that elusive thing. Um, so I'm, I don't have any shortage of lovely guitars to play. You know? listeners hear you study from you give us give us some links oh, okay. to direct them i have a website it's uh not surprisingly timlurch.com <laughs> and on there are some things that one can purchase i decided i would go around the non-existent music industry uh i put my 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 uh what i f stumbled onto is i could put a, a a solo guitar arrangement up on youtube and People would watch it and see it. And then I would write out in my own kind of cryptic Ted Green chord grid style uh, and put a PDF on my website and and made a, a, a reasonable price on all these PDFs. And now they're kind of doing it for themselves, you know. Right. Um, and so there's that. 
Um, there are, you know, uh, digital downloads and physical CDs. Uh, PearlDjango.com has that that part of the catalog. I have two, soon to be three, solo guitar digital downloads and a, a physical DVD of an organ trio record that I made in LA a couple of years ago. I'll soon to be volume two on that as well. And uh, I teach via Skype. I teach via True Fire. So there's a page on my website. That, it's wonderful. I have a True Fire channel, which is a $10 a month subscription, which is great, I think, a great uh, value. And there's lots of material up there. I teach also uh, with Julian Lodge at, at guitar.study. Mm-hmm. And um, Julian, I think, started this page for himself and then realized he had this great platform. And so he invited some of his friends and, and eventually got around to inviting me to join on that. And and I teach one day a week or where the lessons get booked through that site. Um, and uh, have guitar will travel as soon as we're allowed to. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.